So Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arhanto Sama Sambodasa. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arhanto Sama Sambodasa. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arhanto Sama Sambodasa. Tonight I want to um, speak about the Eightfold Noble Path, the last of the interrelated noble truths. I'd like to uh, first begin by um, just naming a little bit of the mystery. This is from uh, Rod McClaver. Why do we exist? (laughs) 50 trillion cells make up the human body. And each of those cells, in turn, consists of atoms. Countless millions or billions of them, depending on the function of a specific cell. And the atoms? They consist mostly of empty space protons and neutrons surrounded by electrons. Empty space, just as the universe is mostly empty space. So we're getting into like particle physics. There's the body, there's bones and head hair and nails and teeth and skin and organs and liquids coming into cells, into molecules, into atoms. Protons, neutrons, surrounded by electrons, this empty space. (coughs) Yet this body, the human body, is held together. This space is held together. It's space unified, even if only for a little while, by a life force. A life force needs a purpose. Without a purpose, there's no reason for unity. The atoms existed before the human body and will be there after life is gone. But in the meantime, in this short interval, what is this? Mary Grace was telling me about the writer and practitioner Stephen Mitchell. Bachelor. Bachelor, sorry. Stephen Bachelor. Going on a series of uh, very long, intensive retreats, and his koan came, he was just left with, What is this life? And I've appreciated uh, Mary Grace's uh, inspiring us with astronomy, just how big and vast this universe is, how small. (coughs) It gets pretty mysterious. Who are we? This type of a question has been around since there was people. And of course, uh, we learned from a very early time that this life does not go on forever, that there is death. 
knowing that there's death, the question demands perhaps even more, what is this? What is this life? Jane Kenyon, she writes that I got out of bed on two strong legs, but it might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, and a ripe flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birchwood, and all morning I did the work that I love. And at noon I lied down with my mate, but it might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks, but it might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls, and I planned another day just like this day. But one day I know it will be otherwise. We have this awareness of, when we're a human being, of impermanence. And some of you have heard this story, but I'll never forget when I first realized that there was death and that it could happen to anyone at any time. And I was four years old and I was riding in the back seat of my parents' car, driving to my grandmother's house, and I have no idea how I realized this, but that was my realization that any of us could die at any moment. And I shared what I just discovered with my mother and father, and they said to me very lovingly, Don't worry, Bobby. It's called Bobby in those days. <laughs> Don't worry, Bobby. It's not going to happen for a long, long, long time. And the way that they were telling me, I knew that they were trying to be kind. <laughs> but I also knew that they were not telling me the truth. Because what I knew was what I knew. And I was four years old. And life has a way of, um, at least in my case, to re-emphasize this, that by the time I was nine, I had lost a younger brother who died of Tay-Sachs disease that I shared a room with, and my best friend who lived across the street, Ellen, and my grandpa who lived downstairs. And so from a very early age, I was catapulted into, what is this? The story of the Buddha is uh, very inspiring, and I'm not going to go into the longer version of the story, but it's the story of, to me, it's the story of every one of us. About a, well, maybe we were, we were not all rich princes or princes, but he grew up, you know, and had everything. And it wasn't until his 29th year when he recognized through going out on some outings, that there was aging and illness and death and separation and that he nor anyone could escape from this. And it was during this time that I would say that actually he experienced the first noble truth, the noble truth of suffering, that everything that I have is going to change. This catapulted him in a sense of urgency. In Pali, it's called samvega. I love that word, samvega. Samvega is that when you have the realization that death could come at any moment, it catapults you into a sense of spiritual urgency 
to understand what is this meaning of life, this small, short interval of time where these cells are clustered together in some purpose, a mystery. What is this? So Siddhartha awakened at the age of 29, and some might ask, well, Bob, you, you... You understood this at four, and you know he was twenty-nine. <laughs> I, I should probably be a super Buddha, right? <laughs> you know, even at the age of fifty-six, even though I have seen death, there's an old Hindu proverb that says everyone thinks everyone else is going to die and not me. So perhaps that's why the Buddha actually, in his Mindfulness of death practices has suggests for one to sit by a corpse from the first day of death until it turns to dust, going through the different stages of decomposition. Perhaps then you really get this will indeed happen. But I think we all can relate to like we maybe it isn't so naive for us to think, gosh, he didn't know to the age of twenty nine, but when we look at our ages, like do we really know? Do we really get it? That this is really indeed going to happen. And I trust that all of us here, to some degree, of course, get it. But there's also a place where we kind of have this hope, of course, that there will be a tomorrow. There'll be not only a tomorrow, there'll be an after the Dharma talk. <laughs> and, you know, hopefully there'll be like a minute ahead. <clears throat> we don't know. And there will come a time where that even that minute ahead, even that moment ahead, even one inhalation ahead will not be there. It's a lot to take in. This first understanding of suffering, dissatisfactoriness, awoken Siddhartha that, and this developed his frame of mind to go into the forest to meditate, to try to understand this meaning of life. And we know, because we have heard about what he's done and, and what he awakened into in this discovery underneath the Bodhi tree of the Noble Truths, that are the, really the cornerstone, the heart the essence, the kernel, the Buddha Dharma. And it's actually kind of nice to just acknowledge there is indeed suffering or anguish, dissatisfactoriness. We have a lot of different descriptors that we can fill in for that. And so he says on his awakening, through many a birth I wandered in samsara, seeking but not finding the builder of the house. Sorrowful is it to be born again and again. O house builder, thou art seen. Thou shalt build no house again. All the rafters are broken, thy ridgepole is shattered, my mind has attained the unconditioned. Achieved is the end of craving in ignorance. This is the Buddha's awakening. And it's speaking to what we've been describing and teaching and practicing with these last few days. Understanding and naming that there is 
indeed dissatisfactoriness, this first noble truth, and investigating deeply its cause. Again, I want to read from the Buddha, and this is such a beautiful translation from Ajahn Amaro. He says, This bhikkhus is the noble truth of the cause of suffering, and that is craving. Craving that is compelling, intoxicating, which causes us to be born into things again and again, ever seeking delight now, here, now, there. Ooh, don't you just relate to that? I do. Seeking delight. Now, here, now, there, what's next? Mm-hmm. It's namely craving for sensual delights, craving to be something. That's a dukkha. <laughs> craving to feel nothing. How many times have we just wanted to not feel nothing? Or to be someone, to feel good. There's an old. Persian tale of a person that rubbed a bottle and whoop, you know it came out of the bottle a big genie with a big scimitar, big knife and the genie says what do you want master, I'll give you anything you want and if you don't tell me in one minute I'm going to cut your head off and so that person started naming, I want a palace, thought well that'll take at least some time to build boom, the palace was there what's next master with the knife right by the person's head so you can imagine this goes on and the guy's you know getting everything under the sun and like what's next master what's next master this is craving finally he gets smart he says I'd like you to climb up and down the pole (laughs) (laughs) he got himself free but we can find that genie sometimes inside our own hearts what's next a delight here, a delight there. Not to say that, you know, delights are nice. I guess it's that part of, I loved what Richard uh, made that separation between desire and clinging or grasping. So the Buddha discovered that there is these Four Noble Truths, that there is a possibility. Actually, I'll take back the word possibility. It's the potentiality for freedom of suffering. This is quite a statement. And his own light and experience showed that. And Hafiz says, I wish I could show you when you're lonely or in the darkness the astonishing, the astonishing light of your own being. I wish I could show you. This wanting mind can entrap us, as we've been talking about. Kabir says, friend, please tell me what I can do about this world that I hold on to, and it keeps spinning out. I gave up my sewn clothes, and now I wear a robe. But I noticed one day the cloth was well woven, so I bought some burlap. And I threw it over my shoulder very elegantly. And then I pull back my sexual longings and now I discover I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage and now I notice I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving my greed and now I'm proud of myself. (laughs) It goes on. 
<laughs> Until Kabir visited a shop. said, I went searching for the shop where the merchant would say, there's nothing of value here, and I found it, and I stayed. And these poems arise out of the richness of not wanting. There's a story in ancient India when a hunter would try to catch a monkey, put a banana in a vase with a very thin neck and the monkey would put his hand into the vase and grab the banana and then couldn't pull it out. Freedom was right here. It's sometimes very difficult to see the, the freedom of the moment. Perhaps we've been sitting here fastening our internal seatbelt, sitting with our wanting, our not wanting, and maybe some of us here have already begun to experience moments of this cessation. The wanting comes up like an itch that wants to be scratched so bad that the mindfulness factors are growing. The observation, the acknowledgement, the be presence with it, and gradually that itch fades away. Noticing the texture and the quality of the mind in the wanting state, noticing what it feels like when it becomes free of that. The Eightfold Noble Path is... I was just... uh, today in the afternoon just writing and preparing for this talk tonight, just... Wow, the Eightfold Noble Path. That's just, just, wow. The Dharma, it's just so good in the beginning, and in the middle, and in the end. It is so complete. And invites us to see, of course, for ourselves with our own experience. So this Eightfold Noble Path, which is what I really want to begin to speak about, is this pathway for us to live inside of in our pathway to greater freedom. So yes, this noble truth of the origin of suffering, its cause, its extinction, but how do you have cessation? How do you become free? And so it's like a very prescriptive medicine is to really look at these eightfold noble steps. This is the pathway to freedom. The Eightfold Noble Path can be divided in any number of combinations. Each of these steps, paths, are interrelated. Just like when you look at a big solid rope, it's intertwined with many little ropes and then strung together. It's intertwined and interconnected. Each of these (coughs) Eightfold Steps are interrelated and support one another. The reason that we work with these Eightfold Steps 
is the direct reasons why perhaps we've been sitting here all these days because we've been sparking at times with our own wantings and not wantings, our greed, hatred, and ignorance is one list that the Buddha offers, pretty important list, one that exists at times in our eyes, our ears, our nose, our tongue, the eye, all of our five senses, and of course our mind states. These eightfold steps are directly supporting us towards deeper freedom in working directly with greed, hatred, and ignorance. And I know that for many of us this retreat has been challenging at times and you know, was the other night a number of hands came up like who wants to go home and if I probably ask that question now we might still see some hands up. You know, when's the meditation bell going to ring and I just want to get past it. Lots of stuff going on within us. So I want to just acknowledge and from my interviews I, I know that we're, we're all cooking here. And I feel very um, touched and inspired by your courage and heartfulness, vulnerability to be and sit with yourself. It helps support me to sit with myself and us to sit with each other. This is why this is a noble community and we're all aspiring to support each other in the deep silence. Such a gift that we can give each other. In the Eightfold Noble Steps, we can sometimes divide them into three areas called sila, samadhi, and panya, which means sila is the steps of virtuous living. Samadhi is the training of the mind, concentration, <coughs> mindfulness, effort. And panya is this wisdom, this understanding. So I'd like to uh, go into that a little bit. And my teacher, Venerable Tungpu Lucero, who he always used to speak about, though it's not articulated in the Eightfold Noble Steps, but he would always say that let's not also let's also remember generosity. This too, he speaks about it in the foundations of building concentration and wisdom is this foundation of generosity in virtuous <coughs> living. So obviously, these steps are leading towards wisdom. Wisdom is panya, the wise understanding, wise view, samadeti. You understand the Four Noble Truths, suffering, its causes, its cessation, its path. This wisdom is such an important factor because we begin to discover that it is our mind indeed that is the creator of our own heavens and our own hells through our own very thoughts. You understand that your actions create results and we aspire to begin to live a life of non-harming, ahimsa, 
along with this wise view is wise intention, wise thought, sama, sankapa. The Buddha spoke about three kinds, and the first is renunciation. Like at this retreat, we're aspiring to just take what's been given to us. We're doing the any dwellers practice. We might have not asked for this roommate, and this is yet who we have. We're working with our renunciation, with perhaps not getting fully the meals that we want to get and doing what we want to do. We're working with our sense of desire and clinging. And it's not to say that desire and clinging is morally bad, so I don't want to even suggest that at all. But what we want to talk about is that perhaps there's some connection between this clinging and the experience of our own dukkha, suffering, to be explored, to be investigated. Within wise intention, there's the intention of goodwill, developing goodwill. This can be supported and guided by the loving-kindness practices, and we've been working with these daily. Standing our metta, our friendliness, our loving-kindness to all beings. This type of intention opposes thoughts that are governed, if you will, by ill will, aversion, and anger. The last quality is this intention of creating harmlessness, guided by compassion, karuna. Within our loving kindness, we are also doing these compassion practices, elevating the mind. May all beings be free of danger and pain. Cultivating harmlessness, the intention. These are very important steps the Eightfold Noble Path. Wise view, wise intention. These set the conditions when we begin to understand about goodwill, renunciation, view of the Dharma, of the understanding of the truths, noble truth of suffering, its cause begins to help us to realize that in our ethical way of our lives, in our way of living our lives, that we need to take a look at these very closely. How can I live my life impeccably? We're going to be going out into the world tomorrow. How do I live with virtue, with integrity, with kindness? So the Buddha actually spoke about three very important steps. Wise speech, Wise action, wise livelihood. And so I want to speak about this wise speech. Samadvasa. The first is that we want to look at how we're speaking in the world, that we do not use false speech, lying. When you think about it, false speech, lying, breaks trust. We cannot have a trustful way of being with each other. Slandering. Slandering is, gosh, when I look at all my <coughs> slandering, really, this writing, I gotta really um, tighten up my own ship here. 
<laughs> Buddha spelled this out very clear, like, oh, okay, here's some things that pay closer time. It's so grateful. Slander creates division, breaks unity. Harsh speech, uttered in anger, hurtful. Insults, takes away dignity, shaming one another. Sarcasm, feeling slighted. So we begin to work with these, bring in this practice. This is where the rubber meets the road. Bring in these practices into our speech. And on the minute I'll be talking about our actions and livelihood. There's a reason for this. Setting our lives in a way that's causing the least harm is not only a tremendous blessing to others, but to ourselves. Because as we begin to, we, we ripen, we have this fruition. When we're living virtuously, we feel good about ourselves. It it's just goes in the territory. We're not doing things that later we're feeling repentful of. Thus, our minds can become more centered, more stable, more still. That begins to build our effort, our concentration, our mindfulness, how that these interrelated steps work together. The Buddha advised us to train with patience. And my teacher, Tampu Lucero, he used to always talk about patience, patience. Patience is the way to nibbana. I was very impatient in those days, and I always wondered how the heck you get patient. (laughs) And through many years of practice, I've come to realize that my ability to sit and be with my impatience is what helps me to become patient, my ability to be with it, gradually to grow. And also the Buddha advises us in the simile of the saw, pretty radical. It says, even if somebody's sawing off your arms and your legs, and don't let any ill will enter your heart. That is pretty amazing aspiration. I don't know if I could do that. <laughs> but I, I would aspire to that. I might need to have Richard and Mary Grace and Jason, you all remind me of that. <laughs> That's what a good friend is. That's what a good friend is. A good friend reminds you. It's an ancient law of the Dharma that hatred never ceases by hatred. Only love ceases hatred, and this is an eternal law. The last aspect of why speech is to also abstain from idle chatter, meaningless talk, Defined as lacking purpose and depth. So when we get on the internet, <laughs> the television, we're twittering someone, you might want to think about it. <laughs> and then again, there is something about us that I want to acknowledge that we as human beings have such a desire to connect. There is over 400 million Facebook users and growing every day in every language on the earth. And in its own way, it's this incredible desire 
for people to connect. And perhaps the what's happening here is an incredible way of a deep connection. Even in the silence, such a deep connection is being made because we're really getting to the bones, to the heart of this human condition. Talking about it, naming it. The Buddha named, yes, there is suffering. And it's like, oh, wow, someone named it. And there's a way out. So the next virtuous way of living, next step is wise action, sama kamatana. This is a beautiful one. Abstaining from taking life. All sentient beings. The Dharma holds that all life is precious. All life. Just as we hold our lives to be dear, precious, our children, our pets, family, our friends, our community, our relations, so forth. Just as we hold them to be near and dear, other beings hold their lives, their offsprings, in that dear way too. So I love in the land of medicine, Buddha, abstaining from killing any living being, even the mosquitoes that are flying. To tell you the story about how the ticks saved our car. So a number of years ago, my wife and I, we tried to live this way as well, not harming any living being. And we lived way out in the woods, not too far from here in Corlitos at the time. And we had a dog and the dog would go out in the woods and She'd get ticks all over and she'd come home and I'd get out my tweezers and pull them out carefully and put them in an old plastic cup and then put them back out in the woods and then she'd go back out later and get my ticks <laughs> on and then she'd come back in the house and that's kind of the cycle of life. Well, one day um, my wife uh, found a tick and then she went outside like we do every other day to put it back out in the bushes and when she went outside happened to notice that her car, somehow the emergency brake got undone and it just started rolling down the hill. We were living on top of a mountain. And she ran and she was able to catch up the car and get it and put on the emergency brake and thus the tick saved the car. <laughs> so you just never know. You never know. If you just went, we, we might have lost that car. <laughs> but you consider, like, I mean, I, I, for me in my own practice, as I've practiced through the years, the sensitivity of just how sacred and precious life is, just it just grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. It's just so precious. I hold my life to be so precious and my children and you all and everyone. And, and so this is feeling of just not wanting to cause any harm. And I know it's impossible not to cause, to stop all harm. I mean, sometimes about... Well, 1996, 14 years ago, whatever, I nearly died of uh, flesh-eating bacteria, necrotic fasciitis, and it was either me or the bacteria. I went for me. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, the bacteria were going to win. And I wouldn't 
I'd be back into the atoms and dust. <laughs> it will be going to at some point as well. But, you know, there comes choices. It was either me or the bacteria, and, you know, I tried to go, okay, guys, um, <laughs> time to go. Now I'm taking <laughs> antibiotics and, uh, and surgeries and so forth. And, um, I mean, we have to make decisions. But how can I, if at all possible, tread as lightly on this planet to cause the least harm as possible? And so I want to bring my full awareness as much as I can consciously to create as least harm as possible. And of course, killing is this thing too, when you have the intention to kill and you kill. And so, of course, we're walking, who knows how many ants we might be stepping on, but we don't see them. And it's not like the intention there. But if we see that there's a whole bunch of ants going by, maybe we can walk around them, do something to negotiate. So also in wise action, of course, is to not steal. It's part of the precepts, the stealing, sexual misconduct, intoxicants. Wise action. If we're living in a way that is virtuous and kind, that's not harming, our minds become happier and we're still, and we'll also create safety for ourselves and those around us. The last aspect that the Buddha spoke about was wise livelihood, sama ajiva. So even looking at our livelihoods, how we make our livings, and that we should try to use to have livings that we're not we're not producing weapons and poisons and toxicants. We're not in the slave trading industry, prostitution, <coughs> exploitation. Not by trickery or deception. Nothing that entails the harm and suffering to others. These are very practical, very down-to-earth ways of living. But when we begin to live these ways, again, we become happier. Those around us are happier. Living virtuously has its own rewards and benefits. And it's very wonderful because they do have their own benefits. And whether you, actually the Buddha spoke about in the Kalama Sutta, the Sutta of Free Inquiry, and he mentions in a part of it there that whether there is a hereafter or not, living a virtuous life bears the fruits of happiness. So there's great rewards in this life by living with virtue, kindness, integrity, without causing harm. As this sila, these ethical ways of living and harmony, this again brings us to other steps in the Eightfold Noble Path of concentration, which consists of wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. Wise effort means effort that works to restrain our defilements. Effort to abandon the defilements. So we talked earlier about these defilements of greed, hatred, ignorance. 
sometimes we even can relate to them to the the five hindrances that I trust that we've been has been named and we've been working with and the sense of the wanting mind or the greedy mind or the grasping mind or the <coughs> aversive, hateful mind or the sleep, sleepiness, restlessness, doubt. And sometimes it's even compared to like water. And that greed is considered to be like red dye on the water. Hatred is like water that's boiling. <coughs> sleepiness, sloth and torpor is like the water's all covered with algae. <laughs> restlessness is choppy waters. And doubt pretty muddy, not very clear. So in our wise effort, we're working on restraining these defilements and the efforting to abandoning them because we see there's not much profit. The other aspect of these efforts is to develop wholesome states of mind to maintain these wholesome states of mind, namely these factors of enlightenment, factors of cultivating our mindfulness and investigation, energy, rapture, tranquility, concentration, equanimity. So in our practices of effort, we can work on developing our wholesome states of mind. As this wholesome states of mind are developed, it leads to seventh step of wise mindfulness samasati what is wise mindfulness we've been practicing it mindfulness of the body mindfulness of feelings mindfulness of mind states mindfulness of the dharmas leads to the last wise concentration samasamadhi this is a type of mind that becomes very one-pointed. <coughs> In some cases, leads to deep absorptions, jhanas in Pali it's called. These different steps, we could spend a lot of time even dissecting even further I think I've said a lot tonight, are very important aspects of growing our wisdom. So the Buddha lays out a prescriptive path, cultivating our virtue, right action, right livelihood, right speech, cultivating our sense of concentration with right effort, Right mindfulness, right concentration that leads us to this wisdom factors, panya, right view, right understanding, right intentions. So in this world, None of us can escape from these worldly conditions, a time there will be praise and blame, there will be gain and loss, there will be at times pleasure and sorrow, fame and dispute. And as we work with these noble steps, we come to see that they 
come and go like the wind. We begin to develop our solid footing and foundation of virtue. Leads us to a concentrated awareness. It grows into <coughs> wisdom. So let's just sit for a few minutes. Again, I'll read the words of the Buddha that I actually read this morning. The Buddha says, I do not teach that the cessation of the world of suffering could be done without the attainment of Nibbana. Within this fathom-long body, with its thoughts and emotions, is the world, its origin, and its cessation, and the path leading to peace and freedom. And this path is the Noble Eightfold Path. May we all be at peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.